Hi, I'm Carlos Frias, the host of Sundial. Today on the show, we're bringing you some of our favorite conversations during our spring pledge drive. First, the writer Jonathan Escoffrey, who wrestled with one big question, what are you? He explored it in his debut book, If I Survive You. Jonathan's book of interconnected stories draws on his real experience. A Jamaican family fleeing political oppression immigrates to Miami. Then we'll talk to Stephen Fain. He's one of the founding professors of Florida International University. He was the longest serving FIU faculty member before retiring earlier this year after more than 50 years. Finally, a sobering conversation with Alea Eastman, who survived the Parkland shooting five years ago. She talks about fighting against gun violence after the day that changed her life. All of that today on Sundial. First, the news. Hi, I'm Carlos Frias. Welcome to Sundial during our spring pledge drive. The writer Jonathan Escoffrey wrestled with one big question in his debut book, What Are You? He looks for an answer in his novel, If I Survive You. It's a finalist for a Penn Faulkner Award for Best American Fiction. Jonathan's book of interconnected stories draws on his real experience. A Jamaican family fleeing political oppression immigrates to Miami. Here, that family confronts the issues that Miami wrestles with. Issues of race, class, economic disparity, and how they survive all these things to figure out where they fit in. People listen to their accents, look at the color of their skin, and keep asking them, what are you? Jonathan writes about Miami the way only an insider can. He name-checks the rapper Trick Daddy. He describes growing up near the stench of Mount Trashmore. The Cutler Ridge in his book is overrun with skittering crabs. It's not the Miami of reality TV, it's just the real Miami. Jonathan joined us a few months ago. We talked about the city that helped shape one of America's bright new voices. Jonathan, we were talking about Hurricane Andrew and how that obviously broke houses, but also broke people, and including some of the characters in your book. Like, what was your experience with Hurricane Andrew, and how did it impact you so deeply that you end up writing about it? Yeah, I, I just think of it as the event that kind of ended my childhood in a way, and whatever was left of my childhood innocence, I, I feel like it was blown away in that storm. It's something that I have to also consider that it also arrived around the time that my parents' marriage was ending. And <laughs> there were there were certainly signs of it. And I think my brother and I were, were warned of it. The, the word that was used was separation. Mm. But her, my, my parents were still living together when this hurricane hit. And then our house is destroyed. We had to move to Miramar. We found ourselves in, in new schools. Me in particular, I remember they had a day. I think there were uh, Broward County was kind of sorting out all of these transplants who were moving north from you know the, our, our wrecked neighborhoods in Miami-Dade County. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember my mother and I were in this auditorium and we were waiting our turn in line to go up to a table where depending on our zip code, we were going to be told exactly what school we go to. And uh, I get to the front of the table and the, the guy who has the list, he finds our, our zip code and says, oh, you know, it's a really good thing you're here because you you were between two schools, but you're going to the good one and not the really, really horrible one. Yikes. <laughs> and then he and then he takes a moment and he's like, hmm, 
And he, <laughs> you know, he double checks his lists, his list and says, Oh, actually, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no! And so this is this oh, is kind no. of my my introduction to uh, living in Miramar. And, and now that I've wow. now that I've said that, like I, I feel bad. I don't even want to say what middle school I, I wound up on because I don't want to slander them. But I, I did have a rough time of it. You wrote about how how your character, the character Trelawney. Who I mean, I I could see like shades of of you in it. I, I would imagine. I know fiction is fiction, and and real life is real life, but. There's this thing where he leaves Miami, and then when he's in Broward, the Puerto Rican kids are looking at the color of his skin and saying, wait, are you one of us? And, like, Puerto Rican kids are cool with him until they realize he's not Puerto Rican, and then they hate him. That dividing line between Dan Broward, I mean, now it's a little bit better, but I feel like, especially back in the day, it was really like being in a different, a whole different world. That was very much my experience. What what I wrote in the book was very much my my yeah. experience in that uh -huh. that uh, that portion. I, I should say I showed up. You know, I won't I won't I won't say anyone threw any kind of parade for me to come join their their clique. But I, I was um, when I was eventually embraced. It, it was by the Puerto Rican kids, and I, I it just didn't really dawn on me that there would be any kind of reason why or any kind of like external factors or, or my presentation would would allow me to join the group it didn't it didn't seem like that because that's not what anyone was immediately saying but what did become apparent was that this group of friends did not like these other groups um and, and the main group i'm thinking of turned out to be the jamaican kids oh, and no. <laughs> and you know and, and at this point in my you know I, I i obviously always knew i had jamaican parents uh, my family was jamaican but i wasn't necessarily somebody who was invested in my cultural heritage in any way i just thought of myself as an american kid um but you know time goes on just a little bit of time goes on and they did realize because i didn't speak spanish they started to ask questions as to why and what you know what made my parents decide to not teach me spanish oh that's and so funny i had to but oh, Papa, had how come to you don't talk spanish <laughs> basically basically and um and there were definitely friends in, there were there were people in this friends group who were were warmer towards me and and others who were a little colder towards me in the first place but i remember my my closest friend in the group i, I really thought this this kind of thing wasn't going to matter to him and you know once i revealed i was jamaican i was out of that group so quickly wow. i was i was i was invited to leave on the spot you know i can see how that led to this question of quote what are you you know i jonathan these everybody thinks like i have a crush on you because i haven't been able to stop talking about this book i really love it and because of that i'm going to ask you to read a little passage will you read that little bit for us sure absolutely when my ninth grade spanish comes up short i break down and call el jefe to come help translate he of course thinks this a monumental waste of his time but i'm supposed to be helping him with his english so he'll generally acquiesce Truthfully, our trade-off is a sham because dude speaks English about as well as any community, community college grad in Miami-Dade County. Every now and again, he'll disfigure an idiom saying, for better or for worse, and I'm supposed to correct him. I did at first, but I've begun to believe he goes out of his way to exaggerate his English deficiency to appear foreign or local, depending how you look at it. That's so great because that is such a... Such a Miami thing that that experience of code switching, right? Like uh, 
moving between groups, uh, but changing your idioms just a little bit. What was your experience life with like with code switching in Miami? Did you find yourself even doing that yourself with with different groups of friends? Yeah, um, it's I definitely did, um, and I didn't necessarily think of it as code switching though. Sure. Um, uh, I mean, truth be told, so I, I I grew up in this Jamaican household where I I was the one I was the family member who did not sound, <laughs> quote unquote, sound Jamaican. Um, I, and you know, I, and I think that is uh, in part because my parents were always working, and so I was I was always put in in daycares, and um, from a very early age, from before I could talk, um, and. Uh, the result of that in a sense is that I would, uh, I would show up in school and, um, on one hand, the teachers would kind of say things like <laughs> you, uh, you're very articulate or something, whatever versions of, of that, um, right. or, you know, they, they might've been the first ones who are very much asking, where are you from? Like the coded um, language without saying, exactly. uh, where are you from? Right. And, and you do so right. much of that in this book is like, like uh, you, you do call out, um, you call out Miami so much, you know, like uh, you say the quiet parts out loud, as the kids say, right? Uh, in this right, book, which right. I think, I, which I really enjoy. Yeah. And I mean, so I'm somebody who, or I was a, a kid who uh, did eventually start to think about how to, again, like construct um a self that can be embraced by a group. <laughs> I don't think I necessarily ever put a value system on any group I I, I would want to fit in, uh, or, or 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 like looking at like the the hierarchies of, of different social groups. It was like any group that will take me, please <laughs> please accept me. And you know, thinking about which groups I was more likely to be accepted within, I, I you know, I definitely played with the language and thinking about, well, this is, you know, especially as you start to delve deep into a certain kind of um culture via things like music, um uh that's where the code switching I think started to started to come in and it was more like kind of playing with language that mm -hmm. then you start to internalize it to the point where it is just your your language. That was the writer Jonathan Escoffrey. He's the author of the book, If I Survive You. He was recently nominated for a Penn Faulkner Award for Best American Fiction. You can listen to our full conversation on our website, wlrn.org forward slash sundial or search your podcast app for WLRN Sundial. Still to come, what's it like to build a university from scratch? We'll hear from one of the founding professors of Florida International University who retired after 50 years. If you like interviews like this, remember, your contributions to public radio help us make your favorite shows, like Sundial. Welcome back to Sundial during our spring pledge drive. I'm Carlos Frias. There's no handbook for building a university from scratch, but if there were, Steve Fain would be one of its authors. He's one of Florida International University's founding professors. The original group that transformed an old airport near the Everglades into the fifth largest public university in the country. Today, FIU has campuses across South Florida, in Washington, D.C., even internationally, in China and Italy. 
but it wasn't like that when Steve got here in 1971. They brought him to discuss a job at a dusty construction site. There were shipping containers and old airplane parts lying around. It required some imagination. Steve was being given the chance to build the university from the ground up. He would help decide what was going to be taught and how. What kind of school would it be? It was a blank canvas. And here we are, more than 50 years later. Steve was FIU's longest-serving faculty member, and he recently retired. He joined us to talk about what it took to get there. So take us back to that day. They say, we got a job for you, my friend. And they take you out to this dusty field. Describe that scene to us. Well, let me, let me start a little before that. Okay. I, was, I was in my office at Brooklyn College where I was teaching. A young guy had my doctorate uh, two years and was putting, putting in this, my two and a half years at Brooklyn. When the phone rang and a voice said something like, you Steve Fain? And I said, yes. Uh, I got your name from Alice Mile and down here in Miami. And we want to turn an airport into a university and thought you might want to join us. That sounded like a Miami Ponzi scheme to me. And That's I, <laughs> it's what it sounded like. I thought it was a joke. People knew that I was looking to leave, and I thought it was a joke. And I ended up calling uh, my ac- ac- academic advisor and uh, my program advisor, and she said to me, you can trust that man with your life. That's G. Wesley Sowers. He is my friend, my trusted colleague. You can trust him. So I agreed to go to Florida. Wow, okay. <clears throat> that, was, uh, that was the first big leap. I had been to Miami once before in my life, 1964. My wife and I came here for our honeymoon. And uh, we came here because we said, this is one place where everybody we knows goes, and we don't want to go there. So let's get this over with. We can always say we were there. We had three beautiful days, and then we had two days of Clio. My wife can honestly say that during her honeymoon, the earth moved and the roof was blown off the hotel. Oh my God! You you guys lived through a hurricane on your <laughs> yes on your honeymoon. Yes. That was it that was, was not a metaphor of any kind. No, 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 that was not. So this was my first trip to Miami. You know, in like twenty years. Well, not sixty four. In ten years, I got out of the airplane to meet Wes. He, he, I spent the night in the in the airport hotel, and the first thing that I realized when I walked out into the daylight, the sunshine was so amazing as compared to New York. It was so clear. It was like going to a great television movie or when they when they upgraded the television color, you know, and you could, it was like getting cataracts. It was like, wow. Life in Technicolor. And then we drove to this place and he told me the story. Uh, he told me about Chuck Perry, this new president, this great guy. And then we drove out to a field. And you kept to, driving, and you kept it, driving, yes, and you we, kept driving we, west, we, right? Yeah, yes, we, and, and there was this huge, it's about 350-acre piece of land, treeless, flat, with a, with a crane digging a hole and a build, one large building emerging and a bunch of uh, some trailers around and about 12, I think it was, uh, trucking containers like uh, put on ships, you know, it's like stacked one on top of the other and made into a building. Sure, called... that's a, that's like the, all the kids think they invented that now. The shipping <laughs> container. Uh... They called it the modular building because okay. these modules. That, that was the, and and uh, in there I met these people, these this group of people, and uh, I heard about Chuck Perry. He wasn't there, and these people talked about this guy like he was a saint. Hmm. They kept talking about his language and his vision and his whole. It was really exciting, and then this fellow named Paul Gallagher took me out onto a runway. Uh, we walked very far. I was wearing a Harris Code, Harris Code coat, Harris Tweed coat. That was my best coat. My in, be- in, what, what this month, is from New York. What that, month was this? This more was or less? this was this was like April. You know. Oh, good. 
it was hot as anything. And I was sweating. <laughs> I was sweating like Albert Brooks in that news movie where he's perspiring when you can see. It was, I was just soaked to the skin. And Paul Gallagher looked at me and he swept his arm across the view and he said, a great university will emerge on this site. Wow. And I went to my, called my wife and I said, I want to come here. Wow. And all my friends said I was crazy. What are you going to? You have no idea what it will be. How will this help your career? What are you going to do? It's a know-nothing place. You, can, you have other jobs waiting for you. I had several others. And I said to Judy, well, we'd like to ski, but we'll come here, and in the summer, we'll go to Columbia, and we'll ski. Uh, to, yeah, uh, to uh, Not Columbia. Um, um, Brazil, we'll go to Brazil and Chile. They have skiing. Chile has ch skiing, and we'll go there, and we'll ski which it never happened. But we agreed <laughs> to come for two plans, years. Right. We agreed to come for two years. Oh, so the original idea was come for two years. Two and, years. That, and that's a big leap because in academia, what you want is consistency and tenure is very important. Well, and that's... I'm a curriculum theorist by training. And so one of the things that I brought to the job was the ability to supposedly the skill and knowledge how to build programs. So that's what I was going to do. And that was like my research. That mm -hmm. was applied research, right? Okay. And there were about 100 people employed by FIU at the time. About, about 50 were academics, and the others were building. They had to build buildings, you had to get permits, you had to get architectural plans, you had to design traffic flows, a million things. And so <clears throat> your discipline wasn't important. You were thrown together. You had some work that was just related, just related to the school or college you might be a part of, but then you had the whole university to work with. And it was amazing. I got to meet historians, philosophers, engineers, public health people, and we all began to talk. And it was exciting. It was more exciting than anything I had ever seen, I'd ever been involved with. And everybody had a vision, and this vision all fed on, fell, fell under an umbrella set up by this guy, Perry. So tell me about that vision, because I do think that to create physical structures requires a kind of vision, but also these, these unseen intellectual ones, this how is this gonna be? Talk to me about the kind of university that you envisioned. How was this going to be different from UM or from you know Dade College at the time? Uh, you're a, you're a young man, so this may oh be, that's so nice th of you to this say. May be I love this guy already. Beyond, this may be beyond you, but Alvin Toffler had published a book called Future Shock a few years before this, hmm. and people were talking about it. And Perry was stimulated by that kind of thinking. What was the idea in that book? What was Future Shock? That future. change is occurring at a pace faster then we can accommodate. Oh. And it, it's going to rapidly change. It sounds so silly now because you know it's true. You're living through it. If you are a young man with, with children who are five or six, you're looking at them and saying, how do you learn a computer when you're just only six years old? What is, you know, you're seeing all these changes. And Perry took this position when he came. He said, "We're not. this is not an elite university. This is an open university. We're here to serve an underserved population. We are going to take the community in and be part of the university. We're not separate from the university. We're of Miami. Everybody bought that. Perry also had, had some things in, in, in education. If you came, we had some rules you had to agree to if you're going to work in education, like no class time limits. Students could pass a course in two weeks if they could demonstrate and move on. Self-pacing for your academic program. Wow. For the whole university, we had no grades. At that time, New College didn't exist in the public sector, so we were the only university around that had no grades, pass or fail. That's what we did. Well, what was the point of that? Well, why should grades get in the way of progress? Hmm. These are interesting people. The average age, average age of our in incoming students would be higher than most. We're going to address this population. We're going to give them credit 
for life experience. We're going to figure out, have them tell us what they've done and see what we can do in terms of translating that into credit towards an academic degree. That was Steve Fain. He's one of the founding professors of Florida International University. He was the longest serving FIU faculty member before retiring earlier this year, after over 50 years at FIU. You can listen to the full conversation on our website at wlrn.org or in your podcast app. Just search for WLRN Sundial. Still to come, it's been five years since the school shooting in Parkland. We hear from Alea Eastman, a survivor. She tells us about her activism against gun violence and what's bringing her joy these days. But first, we need your support to bring you conversations like this one. Welcome back to Sundial during our spring pledge drive. I'm Carlos Frias. Five years have passed since Alea Eastman hid beneath the body of her classmate who in death saved her life. Four years have passed since Alea told Congress what happened that day at her high school in Parkland. She begged them to act with sensible gun laws. Alea left for college. She chose a school in Washington, D.C., where she's spoken in front of small rooms and huge crowds. Three years passed. She became an activist, forced into the role by the day that changed her life. The day a student with a rifle shot and killed 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. That includes her classmate, Nicholas Doiret. She gently laid his head on the ground before she ran. Almost a year has passed since it happened again. Nineteen kids and two of their teachers were shot to death in their classrooms in Uvalde, Texas. President Biden signed the first federal law in decades to address guns last summer. Today, in Florida, there's a push for a new gun law in the state legislature. This law would make it easier to carry a gun. Concealed, no permit required. Alea Eastman joined us last month from Washington, D.C., where she's in college, still speaking out. Alea, I want to flash back a little bit. A year after the shooting, you were on Capitol Hill. You were talking to the House uh, Judiciary Committee, uh, giving testimony to them. There's something in your voice here that is uh, so powerful that you heard then that you can still hear today. So I'd like to play it for just a minute and then ask you about it. Rather than listen to special interests, I ask you to listen to the nation's young people and the overwhelming majority of Americans who have had enough. We have had enough of gun violence in our schools, in our movie theaters, our places of worship, in nightclubs and restaurants, on our streets, and in our communities. Enough. When you hear that, can you feel like making that statement in front of that kind of group kind of set a path for you? Yeah, I I've actually been able to testify before Congress twice um, in the early years of my advocacy. And particularly the first time, it was definitely extremely nerve-wracking mm. because I was very young. But I have never felt so empowered in my life, um, especially as a young woman of color, having the opportunity to not only share my story, but the story of so many others. Um, in relation to gun violence and have people in positions of power actually sit back and be quiet and listen to me for five minutes. That was the first time that I really recognized that my voice is power. Did you feel like after the shooting, did it influence in the way what you wanted to do with your life? 
Yeah, I think being in this this journey of activism definitely solidified my end goals and and definitely helped me specify what exactly I want to do in the future. Um, Because again, before the shooting happened, I'm sure it's really hard to believe, but I was that quiet girl in the back of the class that did not speak unless I was asked a question. And that was just because not because I didn't have anything to say. I definitely felt all the things that I'm feeling, but being a black girl at a predominantly white high school and not only just my high school where I experienced that in elementary school as well oftentimes students didn't want to hear what I had to say and I wasn't welcome to like the study group and things like that so that kind of in turn made me more quiet and reserved but after the shooting happened I I, I don't know I felt something like sparking me where I wanted everyone to hear what I had to say and I think that's just in itself extremely powerful because it, it definitely changed the trajectory of, for example, my personality in itself. Can you talk about what your next phase? So you went to college and you went to college in DC, which feels very symbolic. Yeah, I think as soon as I first got it started in advocacy, I knew I wanted to go to college in DC. Hmm. I feel like it's the perfect environment for a young advocate or just any young person that wants to get involved in change, I think it's the perfect place to be. Um, And in these past four years, I've been able to do a number of internships. I've been able to, you know, have my dream job at the time and work for a gun violence prevention organization and, and get paid to make the world better. And I think that in itself is a unique opportunity and something that I'm extremely grateful that I got to experience in my years of college. Um, And I think also we're right outside Congress. Like I could go walk over there right now and go into an office and talk to a legislator and tell them what I experienced and what I need to see changed. Um, And that's something that is uniquely related to DC. Can you talk to me a little bit about uh, what you're studying in school and, and if, does that help advance this, uh, this this goal of yours? Absolutely. So my major is criminal justice. Mm. Um, I minor in psychology. Um, and my end goal is to go to law school and become a criminal defense attorney in the future. It might change. It might not. But that's just <laughs> where I'm at right now. What kind of questions do you wish people would ask you when they know that, that this shooting affected your life? I wish more people asked me about me. Yeah, I think a lot of people ask me questions about my experience. They ask me questions about my city. They ask me questions about my school, but they never ask me questions about who is Alea Eastman and who was she before February 14th, 2018. Um, and that's just not something people ask. They only care about the after. Um, and that's just something that I had to deal with for the past five years and I get it. definitely not upset by it Um, but it can be frustrating when i'm when i'm constantly defined by my experience um and what i went through because yes what i went through plays a huge role in my life but my experience is not me and that's not the only thing that comes with me will you tell us a little bit more about that because i remember reading that you're a violinist do you continue to play is that still part of your life Yes, um, I was a violinist in middle school and high school, um, but unfortunately I did not continue after high school um, because it was just, I, I played the violin since sixth grade 
and I was able to play with three different orchestras. Wow. Um, and it was definitely fun, and I really, really, really enjoyed it growing up. Um, but again, after the shooting, my interests changed, um, and my trajectory also changed. Um, and it was no longer about you know getting into a school so I can get into a good music program. It was more about how do I get to DC so I can make sure that no other young people have to deal with gut violence. Um, and that's just the sad reality of, of what happened yeah. because I experienced what I experienced. Um, but yes, I, I did play the violin for some time and I really, really did enjoy it. And, and what else, what else about you should, would you, would you love people to know and ask about? Yeah, I think for me, I'm just, I feel like I'm quite, <laughs> quite average. I feel like I'm <laughs> very similar to so many other 21 year olds, but because I've experienced so much and gone through so much, a lot of people kind of view me as like not 21. Right. <laughs> so I love music. I love dogs. I, I'm a huge, huge, huge foodie. I love food. Like I can talk about food for hours. That was Alea Eastman. She's an activist and survivor of the Parkland shooting. She's a national organizer with Team Enough to Stop Gun Violence. You can listen to our full conversation on our website, wlrn.org, or in your podcast app. Just search for WLRN Sundial. And that's Sundial for Monday, March 13th. Leslie Ovalle Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our Director of Live Programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's Vice President of Radio and Sundial's Engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, filmmaker Nancy Spielberg. She's not the only filmmaker in her family. Steven Spielberg is her older brother. We talk about her documentary titled Closed Circuit. It's about the 2016 terrorist attack at a market in Tel Aviv. Plus, Jacqueline Charles, the Miami Herald reporter who President Bill Clinton called Haiti's ambassador to the world. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening.